Amen. You want to grab your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 21. So when I was a young a man, a, a boy, my parents took my sister and I to church. It's, it's just kind of what we did as a family. And my church had some very unique traditions. Every church has some unique traditions, things that seem normal to those who are on the inside and seem very strange to those who are on the outside. Like one of my personal traditions at my church growing up is uh, that we had a hill in the yard of the church. Now, I know that we're from Houston, Texas, so we don't know what hills are, but it's H-I-L-L, a hill, change of elevation, high to low, and I would go out and try to roll down the hill. That was some weird tradition that I had, and I knew it was a good Sunday if I was able to do that. Inside the church, we had even weirder uh, traditions, like I guess the worship leader at our church didn't really like to prepare, and we had hymn books, so he would get up on Sunday morning, and he would say, do I have any requests? And if you were an insider, then you knew that you could open up one of the two hymn books we had. We had a red one, that was the serious one, and we had a blue one that was smaller. It was the more casual of the two, uh, and uh, you could flip through there, find a song that you wanted to sing that day, raise your hand, they would call on you, and, uh, and you would say number 89, and so then the worship leader and the piano player would turn to 89 and then they would look at each other to decide whether or not they knew that song or not and if they did then we would sing it. Uh, my favorite uh, thing to hope for and pray for was that someone request this one specific song. It was out of the casual hymn book, the blue one. It was called God of Earth and Outer Space, which I always wanted requested because, I mean, how cool is it that there was a song about God and outer space? That just sounded so fantastic to me. I could never request it myself. My parents would have beat me in the church before God and everyone. They would have been unashamed. And so uh, I never requested it, but sometimes you get kind of a wily teenager and they would get brave and snarky and they would request number 89 or whatever uh, number it was. Another tradition that we had at this church that I grew up in is when church would start, this is so random, when church would start, they would ask if it was anyone's birthday. If it was your birthday and you were brave enough to raise your hand, then they would invite you to come forward, which is everyone's favorite thing, to come forward so that everyone can see. And, and you would come forward and they would give you a pencil for your birthday. And so the man, the pastor would have a pencil in his one hand, but this is the weird thing. He would have an offering jar in the other hand. So the idea was, we will give you a pencil on your birthday, but you have to give us money on your birthday. It doesn't seem very like, you know, gracious and birthday-ish, does it? You know, like we give you a pencil that's worth nothing to you and you give us actual dollars, please. You know, it just seemed weird. And nobody thought that this was strange. It was just the way that we, we did things. And, and there, every church has its weird traditions, even by your City Fellowship, I'm sure, has some weird things that if you've been here a couple of times seem totally normal, and if this is your first time, uh, feel totally random. But when was the last time that you asked yourself, why do we come to church in the first place? I mean, what is the point of this gathering? I mean, think about even a day like today where you've had to fight the rain, you've had to fight the urge to just stay at home. I mean, there was lightning and thunder at my house when I left this morning. I mean, why go through all of that? Why drop your family off maybe? Or why walk through the rain yourself? Uh, because most of us forgot our umbrellas because they're supposed to stay in the car and yet somehow they never are in the, the car. Why go through all of that for this? Like, what is the purpose of this? What is the purpose of a church gathering? I mean, is a church just a faith-oriented business? I mean, obviously, we've already taken up the collection. Is it just a business where we take money and then we spend money, and hopefully the way we spend it, it feels good to you? Is it a faith-oriented business? We're actually going to see in the Scripture today that they had turned some religious institutions into a faith-oriented business. Is it, is it just a, a righteousness accountability group? 
where I'm trying to live a clean life and you're trying to live a clean life and we come together and we make sure that each other feels bad when we don't do those things. We see that in the scripture. These, these people called the Pharisees, they uh, were very, very in, intentional about pointing out when people were not being righteous. In fact, one time they got onto Jesus' disciples because they were not fasting correctly. Is it just a, a gathering so that we can carry on our faith traditions? These traditions were handed to us um, by people that we loved and respected and cared for and so it's now our duty to pass these traditions on to others the same way they pass it on to us is that what's happening there's actually a group in the gospels called the zealots the zealots were very zealous about their traditions the traditions of the jewish people in fact they were willing to fight and go to war literally to preserve their traditions is it just Is this just a behavior modification center? Maybe you've made some poor choices with your life or you know someone who has made some poor choices and so what is the answer? Well, the answer is to go to church. Go to church. Is this this all this is? Just a behavior modification center? We also see that in the scriptures with the religious leaders. They're concerned about labeling everyone. This person is a sinner. This person is far from God. Is that what we're doing here? We're just identifying those who are broken, those who need fixed. What is the purpose of a church gathering? That's what we're going to answer today. Matthew chapter 21, verse 12. says, And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. So Jesus is in the temple. Now it helps to have kind of a little understanding of what the temple was like. When you would go to the temple, you'd pass through the temple gates. There would be a wall and then you'd be in this open space called the outer courts. Now there was no roof in the outer courts, just a wide open space inside the temple complex that was where the outer courts were and then there was another wall and that is called the inner courts and if you were a gentile which most of us probably are today we could be in the outer courts we could come and worship in the outer courts we couldn't get into the inner courts only jewish people could get there and then uh, the jewish women had to stay in a certain point and then the jewish men could go a little bit further and then the priests could go a little bit further after that and so in the outer courts the places where most of us could hang out There were these businesses, and Jesus is particularly offended by two businesses in the outer courts. The first one is referred to as money changers. Now, there was one type of currency that was accepted in the temple. And you have to remember, uh, there's no really, there's a world government, the Roman Empire, but it's not in the way that we would think of a, of, of a world government. So pretty much you would make your own coinage depending on who you were and the land that you came from and the government that you lived under. And the coinage didn't have anything to do with, you know, uh, money backing it up. It was uh, silver or it was gold. And based on how much it, was, it weighed, that's how much it was worth. And so you can imagine there's different types of coinage in the world uh, that represent different amounts of money. And so instead of dealing with all that, they had some money changers who had made it their business to take the money from all these travelers from all over the Roman world who would come to worship in the temple and exchange them for the currency that was actually accepted in the temple. So it was a necessary business. Another necessary business was the business of selling animals. You would come to the temple to make a sacrifice. 
Now, you didn't want to carry your sacrifice from, from either a long distance in Israel or outside of Israel with you. You're not carrying your sheep with you or your pigeon or your turtle dove. And so it was convenient and it was necessary to have some animals who were being sold there near the temple so that you could come, you could pay your money, get your sacrifice, and then go and offer your sacrifice. It was a necessary business. I mean, we even see in Luke chapter 2 that Jesus' own parents, his earthly father Joseph and Mary, his mother, go to the temple when Jesus is born to dedicate him. And they purchase either a turtle dove or a pigeon, according to Luke chapter 2. So it's a necessary business. The business in itself was not wrong. Why is Jesus so mad. In fact, one of the other accounts of this story says that Jesus finds some ropes and he makes a whip. So not only is he overturning these business tables, he's actually, you know, wielding a whip, forcing these people out. What is he so mad about? He's mad because the practice of the temple had choked out the very purpose of the temple. We see in the Old Testament, the temple was God's house. Of course, God is everywhere. He can be anywhere he wants, but he placed his presence willingly in the temple in Jerusalem. And if you wanted to seek God, you went to the temple. Now you remember, or you see that in this story, Matthew chapter 21, this is preparation for the Passover holiday. So people would come from literally all over the known world to celebrate this holiday in Jerusalem right around Easter for us. So you, Passover week, the temple was way busier than it was during an average week. So not only do you have more people in the temple complex, those businesses had to, to meet that need. So you have more animals, you have more tables, you have more businessmen and women doing their business there in the temple. So imagine you've come To celebrate this holiday, you've come with a genuine need to seek God in his house. And you are there in these courts and you are trying to pray. Meanwhile, all around you is all this business. Not necessarily bad business, but all this business, all this exchange of goods and services, all this exchange of money, all this bartering is happening. And you've come to pray. How difficult would it be? It would almost be impossible to actually pray. Now in the New Testament... God's house, we see, is no longer centralized in one location. So there's no temple in Jerusalem. And even if there was a temple in in Jerusalem, Jesus has made a way for us to worship God everywhere. So in the New Testament, what we see is God does not place his presence and commit himself to specific points of geography, meaning there's no holy place really in this world that if you go there, you're guaranteed to get God's presence. He doesn't commit himself to points of geography. That's why there's no, nothing special about this particular building. We love it, and we're glad that God has set it apart and sanctified it so we can use it. But if you came here on a random night, you are not necessarily guaranteed God's presence. He doesn't commit himself to places, in geog- places of geography we see in the New Testament. What he does commit himself to is gatherings of believers. We see that in Matthew chapter 18, Verse 20, Jesus said to his own followers, where two or more are gathered in my name, I will be there. So Jesus says wherever two or three believers, followers of Jesus get together, Jesus is also there. He commits his presence to us. That's why this gathering is special. 
Not because we do things unique or different or in our preferred style, but because there are at least three of us here this morning gathered in the name of Jesus, which means he has promised his presence to us. And in Matthew chapter 7, verse 7, Jesus himself said, if you seek, you will find. And if we come together to seek Jesus because of the promise that he's made to us, we will find him. Now the Old Testament uses this word, ascend. When they would go to the temple to worship in Jerusalem, they would ascend. Now we talked last Easter, or as we were leading up to Easter, that there's a whole section of the Psalms called the Songs of Ascents. And these were the songs that they would sing when they were ascending to worship in the temple. First you would have to ascend to the city of Jerusalem because it's built on a large hill or a small mountain. And so to literally go into God's city, you would have to ascend, you would have to go up. And then the temple complex was also in a hill in that city, it was on a high elevation. So when you went to the temple, you literally had to ascend. You had to walk up steps to get into the temple complex. And for them, ascending was not just a physical ascent. It wasn't just a physical journey of literally moving your body from a low elevation to a high elevation. We see in the Psalms that there was a spiritual component to them. As they, as they ascended physically, they were also ascending spiritually. They were preparing themselves to seek God in his house in the temple. And listen, this is where the gospel is so powerful. Because sure, we can physically walk up to a building, but we cannot spiritually ascend to God. God is holy, and we are rebels, we are offenders, we are sinners. We can't ascend to God, we can't make it to where God is. But God loved us, and so Jesus descended down to this earth. The Son of God takes on human flesh, and his perfect life, and his perfect death, his perfect resurrection changes us. Psalm chapter 24 says, who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Meaning who can go up to the temple to be before holy God? And the answer is in Psalm 24, he who has a clean hand, clean, who, he who has clean hands and a pure heart. Now let's just go around the room. Anybody feel like they have a pure heart? Anybody feel like you have clean hands? No, we can't ascend to God. Sure, we can physically walk up somewhere. We could go to Jerusalem right now and we could walk up to where the temple used to be. But who can spiritually ascend to God? No one. Thankfully, Jesus has descended to us. That through his life and death and resurrection, we can be clean. So if we're believers in Jesus, if we've trusted Jesus, then he has cleaned us so we can ascend. Jesus descended so we could ascend, so we could seek God in his house. But it doesn't feel like there's much ascending in our churches today. At least not in very many of the churches that I have been to. I mean, think about how you got here this morning. I'm guessing that if you've been to church here at least one time, that you woke up today at the same time that you woke up last Sunday. Your alarm clock went off at whatever it was. And I like to do odd times because somehow it feels like I'm getting more sleep if I wake up at, you know, six 
1901 as opposed to 6. I feel like I get that extra minute to sleep in. It makes me feel good. So your alarm went off this morning, probably at the same time that your alarm went off you know, last week. And then you probably, for most of us, had the exact same breakfast that you had the last time that you came to church. Maybe not the exact same thing, but kind of in the same genre. So maybe you went donuts last week, but you changed it up and you went kolaches today you know, on your way here. So same time, same uh, same breakfast. Then you, when you got in your car, you came the same route to church, right? Nobody gets creative on their way to church. You know, like I know it's just five minutes, you know, to church this way, but uh, Google Maps is telling me to go this other way as well. And it's giving me, I'm going to take option number three, which is a 15 minute journey, just to, just to mix it up. Like nobody did that today, right? Nobody left their house with enough time to just take a scenic tour on the way to church. So you're waking up at the same time. You're eating the same kinds of things. You're coming to church the exact same route that you normally came. What happens when you get You get into this property and you need to park your car. So what do you do? You go to the exact same parking spot that you parked in last time. Now, maybe you were a little bit late and somebody was already there. So you tried to park as close to that spot as possible. Then you came in and you came in here and you didn't go, you know what? I sat on the left side last week. I'm going to mix it up today. I'm going to sit on the right side. No, you went and tried to sit in the exact same seat that you did the last time that you were here. And if somebody was sitting there, you just tried to sit as close to that seat as possible, but not so close that you were actually sitting right next to them. You could put a chair in between you, especially if you got here early, right? So we're leaving at the same time. We're getting here the same way. We're sitting in the same seats. And then what happens? We mix it up a little bit today, but normally we don't do that. We sing one song, and then I come up, and I say the exact same thing every single Sunday, right? I've tried to change it up, but I just can't do it, right? Welcome to Bayou City Fellowship. So glad you're here. It's going to be an amazing day today. Why don't you welcome one another and make it feel like family? And then we sing a few more songs, and uh, you know, there are different songs each week, but pretty much they're the same songs. We got kind of one big pot of songs, and we pull it out, you know, because we can't add too many new ones, because then people start emailing in, but we can't not ever sing new ones. Um, We can't ever, you know, we got to sing some new ones, because then people get tired of the songs, and so we we try to hit that sweet middle ground for everybody. And then I get up here and I tell the same stories, you know, same types of stories, hopefully not the exact same stories. And, uh, and then I, you know, then it's over at about the exact same time and you leave and you get in your car. And then what do we do? We go to the exact same restaurants that we've been to before. So it's easy being stuck in this routine to let the necessary practices of coming to church choke out the very purpose for us being here. It's necessary for you to wake up in the morning. It's necessary for you to get here by some preferred route. It's necessary for us to welcome one another. It's necessary for us to sing songs of worship. It's necessary for us to open the word of God. But sometimes we get so trapped in that routine that we forget why we're here in the first place. And many of us come to church and the only purpose for being here It's just to do the routine one more time. That somehow that's what our church gathering experience has become. You doing your routine and me doing mine and us bringing our routines together. And we leave and we felt like we went to church, that we made our appearance. And because we get trapped in the routine because the necessary practices of coming to church choke out the very purpose for us being here. We ignore the promise of what can happen here, which is that Jesus Christ himself, the Son of God, has committed to be here if we gather in his name.
If we gather in the name of routine, there are no promises attached to that. If we gather in the name of Jesus, he will be here. And when he's in the room, anything is possible. Now, that all sounds very spiritual. And we might have some preconceived ideas about who can actually ascend. If some ascending is going to happen in this room, meaning if we're going to come together not just for the routine, but actually to seek God in his house, and we're going to ascend, not physically, obviously, at Houston, but spiritually. That sounds very spiritual. And we might have some ideas about who can ascend the quickest, who can seek God the best, who he would receive. Like maybe the, the spiritual elite would be able to do that, but some of us maybe feel disqualified. Well, thankfully, Jesus told a parable in Luke chapter 18. If you want to turn there, Luke chapter 18. He tells a parable about something that happened in the temple. When some people went to seek God in his house. Luke chapter 18 verse 9. It says, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So we get here Jesus' motivation for telling this parable, which is a, a story to represent a point that he wants to make about the kingdom of God and the way that God is and the way things work in God's kingdom. So he's, he's telling this parable to people who are trusting in their own righteousness. Now, I understand this because many of us are caught in the trap of already. Like, think about Jesus. He's going around. He's traveling. He's preaching this message about the kingdom of God. It's different than any message that has been preached before. And who is responding? The downcast are responding. The broken are responding. The demon-possessed are responding. The sinners are responding. Who in the Gospels is not responding? The religious elite. The spiritual leaders. Why are they not the ones responding to Jesus' message? Because they were already righteous. At least that's what they thought. Listen, I get that. Most of us come to church and we're like, I'm already godly. I'm already seeking God. I'm already reading the Bible. I'm already knowing how these things work. I'm an insider. And you and I know that you get the most out of any kind of meeting when you realize that you need to be there. I mean, think about your meetings at work if you have those. Those meetings that don't concern you, what are you doing? You're looking like you're taking notes on your phone. Meanwhile, you're playing Jewel Mania. Because you don't need to be there. You don't see any purpose in being there. Well, if you and I come to church every single week knowing that we've already mastered whatever it is that we're talking about, that the songs that we're singing, they're already true about us, then this will not feel like a very necessary gathering, will it? But you and I can know, based on Jesus' teaching and the rest of the scripture, that when we feel like we've already made it, we are never and have never been farther from God than we are in that moment. So the Pharisee and the tax collector come to pray. Verse 10, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. 
And the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner." I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. But everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So the Pharisee and tax collector in Jesus' story come to pray. Now there were scheduled times of prayer in the temple at 9 a.m. and 3 p.m. But you could come anytime in between that to pray by yourself. And so these two come to pray. The Pharisee, he's the most pious Uh, Jesus could not have picked a more pious representative than the Pharisee. That's just what they were known for. And they were pious. They were righteous, at least on the outside in the way that they ordered their life. Tax collectors didn't even, uh, as far as history tells us, they didn't even really bother to go to the temple because they would have been so ridiculed when they got there. You remember tax collectors actually were Jewish men who said, I'm going to work for the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was not just some umbrella government, but they were actively extorting Israel. They were actively harming Israel while at the same time ruling it. So you can imagine how the uh, regular Jewish people felt about these tax collectors who said, actually, I'm going to take uh, my own people's money and give it to the Roman Empire so they can keep, um, they can keep pillaging us so they can keep taking advantage of us. And so they were extremely hated. And so they wouldn't go to a place like the temple, a religious place like that, because everybody else would have just turned and mocked them and scorned them. But here in Jesus' story, the tax collector does actually go to the temple. And what does the Pharisee pray? He starts his prayer with a prayer of thanksgiving. That's how usually prayers would have started. But what is he thankful for? He's thankful for himself. It's a prayer of thanksgiving to God, for me. What does the tax collector do? He stays far off. And the, the, the Pharisee, he's feeling puffed up. And, and why does it say that he's feeling puffed up? Verse 12, I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all that I get. Now his fast twice a week was totally voluntary. The Old Testament law only asked him to fast once a year, the Day of Atonement. But he wanted to be pious, probably with what started as a pure heart, said, no, I want to fast more than that. And so he apparently fasted twice a week. And he said he'd give tithes on all that he, he got. And so some uh, Bible scholars believe that it wasn't just that he tithed on his income, which is what the, the Old Testament law required him to do, but if somebody gave him some fruits and vegetables, he would take 10% of those and he would give those away. And one of the other places in the Gospels, it talks about the Pharisees even tithing on their, their mints, just the, the little, little things that they would use to flavor food. They would even set 10% aside to do that, something that God had not asked them to do. Now, uh, I told you before that when I was about 17 years old is when I started to really own my faith. I mentioned earlier that I, I did kind of grow up around the church, but at 17 is when I took the faith that my parents handed down to me and I really began to make it my own. And at my church at that time, uh, Christian t-shirts were very popular. They were always talking about being bold, being a bold witness for Christ. That was a, a thing that I heard all the time. And a Christian t-shirt to, their, uh, to them was a very practical way to do that. And so I had a lot of Christian t-shirts and usually they had some kind of pun associated with them. So you could think of a bumper 
sticker that you see, uh, you know, on a t-shirt. That was what was happening. So I was a junior in high school, and I thought I was funny. And so I found this 80s puff paint Christian t-shirt. You know, you remember puff paint? Uh, it's the kind of paint where you put it on, and then it would actually puff up a little bit, and so you got kind of the puffy letters on the shirt, and it was pink. And it, in pink, puff paint, across the shirt, it was black, it said, uh, radically saved. And so I would wear this to school at least once a week, both to be bold for Christ and to be the hilarious guy that was wearing the pink 80s uh, t-shirt. Now, of course, the scripture does not encourage us to wear 80s pink puff paint Christian t-shirts. Not in the Bible. Thou shalt wear a Christian garment today. You know, you're not going to find that anywhere in the scripture. So imagine if I took something that I wanted to do, one for a pure heart and another part of me to be hilarious and to be loved and liked and accepted uh, by my peers. Uh, If I took something that I was doing and then I started using 80s puff paint Christian t-shirts to judge whether or not other people were being bold for Christ. Hey, are you willing to wear this t-shirt? Because if you're not, pray and repent right now. Where's your Christian t-shirt today? Let's just see that you're wearing a Tommy Hilfiger. Do you hate Jesus? <laughs> where's, your, where's your shirt? Not wearing your shirt. Imagine how ridiculous that would be. But that's what this Pharisee is doing. He's taking something that God did not ask him to do and using it to judge other people. Now, what he was doing was amazing. It's fantastic to fast twice a week. It's a good thing. Tithing off all you get, that is an amazing thing. That was a God-honoring thing. But where he was mixed up is he believed those things were what made God approve him and disapprove of this tax collector. Now, like those listening to Jesus' parable, this day, back in the first century, we all internally believe that there is a pecking order to those who seek God and those who hear Him and He hears. We just believe that there is. That there are spiritually elite in this world that when they pray, God hears them, and when I pray, He does not hear me. And if I was more like them than Maybe my prayers would be answered. He would do some kind of miracle in my life. All of us believe that there is a pecking order to those that God accepts and those God listens to. So we just do what the Pharisee does, which is to measure ourselves. And there's got to be some kind of line because that's what it means to have a pecking order. And if the front of the line is way over there and those people in the front of the line, those are the people who God hears and listens to. And those, when those people seek God, then God also seeks them out. When we do our things, it doesn't happen because we're at the back of the line. But we don't want to be at the back of the line. We want to be in the front of the line. So we find some kind of yardstick, some kind of measuring stick, and we try to get to the front of the line. And maybe reading the Bible is your thing. You just love it. You just can't get enough of it. You like it on an intellectual level. You like to dig in, seek treasures, find the whole thing. You love the whole thing. And so you use that as your yardstick. Well, I'm reading the Bible 30 minutes a day. That guy doesn't even own a Bible. I'm definitely in front of him. This guy owns one, but he doesn't know where it is. And so I'm in front of him. This guy owns one and he's reading it, but he's only probably reading it about 15 minutes a day. He's always talking about how busy he is. He's not ever talking about going into his closet to read his Bible. That's where I read my Bible, the closet, because that's what the scripture says. And so that's what I do. And so I'm in front of this guy. This guy reads the Bible as much as me, but the 
Bible studies he's doing and the authors he's reading are not as sophisticated and intellectual as the ones that I'm reading. And so I'm definitely in front of this guy. But listen, maybe reading the Bible is not your thing. Your thing is prayer. You like to pray. And when you pray, man, it just feel like you're in the presence of God and stuff happens when you pray. And so you use prayer as your measuring stick. I'm praying 30 minutes a day in my closet. Again, holy place. This guy's not praying. This guy prays. God doesn't listen. This guy prays, but uh, he doesn't pray with as much theology in his prayers as me. And so I'm in front of him. This guy prays, but he always cries when he prays. And I think that's a little bit good, but it's kind of weird. And so I'm in front of him as well. (laughs) But maybe prayer isn't your thing either. Maybe like you've ordered your life because you're a very orderly person and your life is very clean. When people look at your life, it's very impressive. I have a family devotional with my children. And every night we gather around that room and I pray and I bless them and we study the scriptures. I don't just read the Bible to my children. I, we dig into the Greek and Hebrew root words of Ephesians. And then I make them repent of all the many sins that they've done. And that's how my family works. This guy barely gets his kids in bed. So this, this people just read the Bible, but it's the Bible with the cartoon characters in it. And my kids don't have Bibles with cartoon characters in them. I don't drink, they drink. I don't, I don't watch certain television shows. In fact, I don't even have a TV, I burned it. <laughs> this guy's always talking about watching The Voice and other TV shows all the time, so I'm definitely in front of them. Why do we do that? Because internally, we all believe that there is a pecking order to this. And this comparison that we do is a practice of the church that chokes out the purpose of the church. There are no measuring sticks here. We just don't have them. Because God does not have measuring sticks about those he receives and those he doesn't. Because the gospel, again, is that God does have a measuring stick It is the person of Jesus Christ. He is the measuring stick. He is the standard. He is at the one at the front of the line. He is righteousness incarnate. And he is God's standard. And listen, all of us will be judged based on how we compare to him. The gospel, though, is that the one who is the measuring stick, the one who is in the front of the line, went all the way to the back of the line where I was unable to ascend, unable to seek God. And the measuring stick himself came back to me and said, hello, my name is Jesus. And I was like, hello, my name is Curtis. And he says, come with me. And he brought me all the way to the front of the line, not because of what I had done, but because he is the stick and the measuring stick, the standard himself gave me grace. And now I stand at the front of the line with him. Not me, I'm not there by myself. The only way I can seek God and be heard by God and receive from God is because Jesus said I could 
and I stand with him. But the great thing about Jesus, he was not just content with one person. He went to the back of the line for you and brought you to the front of the line and the person next to you and brought them to the front of the line. And so all of us are in the front of the line. So the truth is there's not a line, just a gathering of people who have come to seek God. And whether your life was really clean this week or it was really dirty this week, whether you have pure hands this week or you have nasty hands this week, it doesn't matter if you are in Christ then you are at the front of any line where he is hearing and listening from people who are seeking him. Now listen, if you want to try to get to the front of the line based on your own righteousness and the way that you can order your life, by all means, try it. But you'll never get there. That's what the Pharisee was trying to do. Just compare himself all the way to the front. But who does the scripture say went home justified? The tax collector who stood far off the edge of the temple complex itself and he couldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven he just stared at his feet but he's the one who went home justified he ascended was heard by God in God's house what is the church and why does it gather to encourage one another? Absolutely. It's fantastic. To build each other up. It's great. But it's more than that. It is to seek God in his house. No matter who you are. Not based on our merit but on the grace of Jesus Christ. Jesus descended so that you could ascend, so that you could pray, so that you could seek God in this place. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that we don't compare ourselves all the way to the front of the line. But that you receive us no matter who we are. And I pray now that you would give us confidence to seek you in this place because of Jesus. We commit ourselves to you in every way. In Jesus' name, amen.